How do developers make money? If a guy's going to build a development, their end picture is either to own it or to sell it. And so if they're thinking about owning it, they could be doing this as a way to park money because they're looking for tax advantages, depreciation, where you can get income and depreciation. So this is a long-term hold for them. So that's how they're going to make money. Sometimes making money is by not paying taxes. And a considerable amount of taxes, if you go and do a brand new development that's $50 million and you got accelerated depreciation and you only have to put in $15 million cash, it's a really great model. And then the other side of that is, hey, you build this thing and it costs you $40 million to build it and it's worth $60 million. Do you want to sell it and get your money? Because I'm sure that over the last couple of years, you've had people that had new developments come on that they didn't think that they were going to sell. Because three years ago, when they started planning this, the market wasn't that hot. And then it got hot. And then it's like, well, man, we come to the market at the right time. We can 2x what we thought we were going to make. What is sort of our buy box or criteria for opportunities that might work for development? We're focused on affordable multifamily housing. So the thought process is to get it built and stabilized. Now, we'll decide later if we're going to own it long term or if it's a two-year, three-year hold. We start with how is this asset paid for? So we'll typically have 25% of the units set aside for market rate rent, 50% for residents that make 80% of the area median income, and then 25% for people that make 60% of the area median income or less. The powers that be say that we as consumers should not spend more than 30% of our income on housing. That's rent, electric, water, gas, whatever you use. If you've got average rents of $1,700 a month, you can build a great project that will be feasible for the market, that will make everybody money and provide that level of housing. Hey, welcome to an episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Man, we should be calling this the new look of affordable housing soon, Alvin. That's what we should be doing on this one to kind of make it named after your book. That'd be really cool. But Alvin, how are you doing today, man? Man, I'm doing great today, Kent. Uh, I'm not going to date this thing. So at this time in our where we are, it's, it's just really a great time. And it's, it's been difficult, but the difficulties produce uh, diamonds, right? Uh, pressure produces diamonds. So um, I'm doing great. Every opportunity for a delay that we've had this past year, uh, 2023, has been different has allowed mm. us to walk our way into a better situation. So every delay has presented a new opportunity that has turned out better each time. So super excited to be here today. Man, I think that's such a great story for the listeners to follow because when you're in development, there will always be problems that come up. Mm -hmm. And learning from other people's steps and how they pivot. That's really how we learn and how we can share those stories and help the next generation. So Alvin, I think what we want to cover today is we just mentioned and we talked about a lot of different pivots, right? So I want to go through a few topics with you today. One is how do developers make money? Two, what are we looking for in terms of deals? Because I think a lot of times people have been reaching out to us and simply saying like, hey, I got this deal. Will it work? And that's it. They just throw it off the, over the fence and they try to figure out. And I think if we can spend some time today educating the audience on how to look for deals and what to look for and those back of the neck and mats, I think that will be really, really helpful for the audience today. I think that's good. Yeah. And then we'll always talk about a little quick refresher on the tax exempt bonds because we got so much good feedback about the tax exempt bonds and we constantly get some questions about that. So we can go through that at the end. 
I'll but, put together a document that I'm going to send oh, you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so let's don't do the tax exempt bonds today. I want you to read this, go through mm. this document, and okay. then you'll be able to come up with some really good questions from it. Oh, yeah. That'll spent be great. a lot of time doing that. So I'm going to send that to you right now. I love it. Okay. While you're sending that, so for the audience today, we'll go through how do developers make money. We're going to review all the secrets to all of you today. Nothing being held back. These are This is information that people pay $50,000, $100,000 to be in small rooms and in masterminds to kind of learn from all this stuff. Today, Alvin and I, our mission is to provide affordable housing to as many people as possible. And we understand that in order to do that, we have to equip our audience with the information that they need so that they can make the choices that they want to make to help whoever they want to help in whatever way they want to help. But we hope that's through housing. So Alvin, this is like a big question out there. And people ask me all the time, like, hey, how do developers make money? Especially when it comes to getting a project entitled. Maybe if you have an example that might help kind of paint the picture a little bit for our audience. Yeah. I want to say it's really easy, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll say this. It's like it's like a cook. You know, he takes and he's he's baking a cake. So he gets all the eggs, the flour, the sugar, the milk, and everything, and he puts it in, he mixes it up and puts it in a pan and he bakes it. Now he takes that baked cake and he puts it in a box and he sells it on a wholesale level to somebody, maybe at a bakery that cuts that cake up into 15 pieces and that person sells slices. So the developer is a guy that goes out and actually has a vision for something to be built in a, you know, in a particular area. He puts the land under contract and he goes through the process of taking that raw piece of land through his vision and getting it entitled. Entitled means totally approved by the city, county, area, wherever you are, lo locale, to allow that vision to be built. So at the time that land's bought, he could have paid a million dollars for 10 acres. And depending on where you are, you know, it's 100,000 an acre. That could be high, that could be low. But let's just say that that's par for the course. And that's Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, not California, but Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, Midwest. That 100,000 an acre now with those 10 acres could be, those 10 acres, he could probably do 200 units on those 10 acres. And so the first way that developer makes money is by getting those entitlements in place. And he could actually go out and sell that land at that particular time. Once it's entitled, he can put a price tag on that thing of probably 6 million, 7 million, and sell it because we're basing that number off of a unit count of 200 units where those units, the dirt under each unit is worth about $30,000 just on a low scale. So 200 units, $30,000, that's 6 million bucks. The developer paid a million dollars for the dirt. He spent a million and a half dollars getting it entitled. So he's got two and a half million in it. He's got a $6 million price tag. Bam, he just made three and a half million dollars in a year, two years. That's the first way the developer makes money. When you're looking at a developer that takes on a single family housing development, it's the same thing. Uh, he'll go out and buy 50 acres of land, 50 acres. He can put 200 houses on it. He pays a 
two million dollars for those 50 acres because it's probably farmland or whatever and he takes it and gets it entitled and he can either sell paper lots from the entitlement to a builder at that point here we've got 200 paper lots already entitled and we're going to sell them to you for twenty thousand dollars a piece well same thing you know he's got what 200 times times whatever that number is and that's the money he made or he may actually go ahead and put the roads, streets, curbs, gutters, stop signs, and everything in. And now that $2 million that he paid for that land, he's got 200 single-family lots that he's selling for $70,000 a piece. So now he's turned that into a $14 million gain from doing the entitlement work. But he's also put streets, curbs, gutters, and stuff in. And I can tell you, from our experience here in Greenville, Texas, uh, post-COVID, it cost us about $28,000 to finish a 60-foot wide lot. So that means to put the, all the utilities in the ground, to put the streets, lights, stop signs, everything, $28,000 a lot. That was our finished lot cost. So if I paid you know, $2 million for that land and I've got uh, how many lots did I say? I've got 50 Six. acres, about 200. Mm -hmm. I've got uh, 50, 50 acres, yeah, 50 acres, and we paid $2 million for it. We got 200 lots out of it, so we got $2 million divided by 200 lots now. That's 10000 a lot, paper lot, before it's developed, or before it's entitled. We get it entitled. Now that value probably goes to about 30000 a lot. Just fully entitled. And now you go, the developer will go and spend $28,000 more per lot. And now he's all in at 58000 but he's going to sell it for 70000 So mm. he's like $30,000 per lot. And so when we've seen developers go under, most of the time, Kent, it's because they have gone out and bought land like that gotten it entitled, put the streets, curbs, gutters, and all that stuff in, and then the housing market take a dump and he couldn't sell the lots to build. Mm. So there there have not in this time, but you know, a few years back, you could probably remember driving through a neighborhood where the streets are there, but there are no houses. Why is that? Well, that and that's why. And that's probably why. Well, Alvin, just to kind of dive into the details a little bit so the audience can follow, we mentioned... 2 million 50 acres that's 200 lots 10k a lot how for the entitlement phase i want to make sure I, I separate out the subdivision piece and the entitlements or do people typically subdivide the lots into those 200 lots during the entitlement phase or do they typically do that and subdivide the land before they even start the entitlement process it's done through the entitlement process with your engineer so got it, got you're, going in, you're going in, you know, your engineer is going to be totally responsible for the drawings and the topo surveys and the drainage and everything of that development before it gets entitled. And so as you're doing this process with your engineer, you've already painted a picture that we'd like to get a, based on the square footage of these 10 acres, if we want, you know, 6,000 square foot lots, mm -hmm. then this is how many lots we'll be able to effectively get out of it. Then you carve out the roads and you'll lose some of that space to the roads and stuff and the setbacks. But initially, you'll have that picture in mind when you start the entitlement process. 
Great. And then is it common for developers to put in all those horizontal work that you talked about? Because some folks might just sell it as soon as it's entitled, right? Do it's, you, yeah. How do people make a decision on whether or not they should put in those streets, the utilities, and those roads and the lights right. or sell it once it's entitled? What kind of thought process have you gone through that? Well, Ken, I think that that decision is based on every developer's business plan. Mm. Um, that may be market-driven in some areas because if you see that, oh, man, things are slowing up and this thing's entitled, maybe I can sell it right quick because there are other guys that are not willing mm. to take the risk that I've taken to get it entitled. But now that it's entitled and it's shovel-ready for development, they may have funds available to go ahead and, and build this thing out, and they may be an end user. So they may say, yeah, we can take it, build our own streets, and build our own houses. So it really just depends on the, probably the market is probably going to be a biggest driver for that, because and maybe availability of funds. You may have gotten into this with just the thought process of getting it entitled, and then you didn't know you could build it and make that much additional money. And so if you have the ability to get those funds, your business plan could change just like that because now you have the ability to do it, that you've gone through this year-long process of putting it together. Now you got to do is manage the construction, which is a lot easier than <laughs> the first part of it, right? So I think <laughs> vision is probably just based on uh, how thick is your skin, mm. uh, availability of funds, and then primarily probably market-driven. Got it. And do people typically get financing for just a horizontal work? Or would they usually, I would imagine that if you're getting construction loan financing, that usually covers a horizontal and vertical work. But does do people just look for financing with just a horizontal piece? Yeah, there are, there are companies oh, okay. that do just that. But And I know a couple of them, but they do that in specific markets, right? Um, surely it's going to be markets where there's Great demand, great growth. You know, nobody wants to finance underground pipes and and electrical and that and streets if nobody's going to be able to buy it because you know you can't sell that stuff. So absolutely, but there are companies that 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 do got that. it. And I'm thinking about how do you make these decisions, right? Do would you recommend for folks sometimes to get a appraisal pre entitlement, get an appraisal post entitlement, and also get an appraisal estimate at least? for post-horizontal work? Because I imagine that that must be the only way you can decide whether or not it's worth, is, is the work worth a squeeze, right? Because if I can't get a big enough spread once I put in horizontal work, then financially, a decision like that doesn't make any sense if you, right. there is no ROI for that. Um, we do. We, we, we have an appraisal, two or mm. three phase appraisal, and we may order two or three of them through the process. Mm. Because every time we're spending money on a deal, we're adding value. That's all. And that, you know, our market here this year has changed so quickly. Um, I mean, it went up like this, mm -hmm. started coming down like this. And so it's good for you to at least have an idea of where it is when you get started, you know, starting with the end in mind. But then when you go for financing, that lender is going to definitely do that. So if you can walk in the door with, here's an appraisal that I got. They're going to commission their own 
but at least they can put yours up against the market data that they know they already have because most lenders that's interested in any project in any market probably already have their pulse on that market else they wouldn't have an interest in it anyway so they're going to know that dirt is selling for x that lots are selling for x that apartments are appraising at x and uh so there there's so that appraisal is just kind of solidifying some of the data that most of these lenders already have yeah and i think the great story we just told with a few clients of our hours right before this call is we wanted to advise folks to make sure you're dealing with an appraiser whose appraisal is actually going to be used by whoever is going to be lending on your deal and i think that's just a, a quick way to save yourself a few thousand dollars and that's what happens when you work with us is like we get to advise you on these things and help you look out and anticipate potential issues so that you don't end up wasting any funds or wasting any time, most importantly. Well, and, and even if the lender may commission their own, we've used mm. a firm that's so great that at least we know we've got something to stand on, right? And they'll take ours into consideration and may even call the same guy and get it redone because, <laughs> because of the firms that we use. But at least we know that we didn't just go get a guy out of the Cracker Jack box to give us an appraisal to make us feel good. That's exactly right. Um, so we we covered how people make money on the pre-dev phase. How do developers typically make money after it's everything is built? What sort of options have you seen developers explore on how to make money after sort of the vertical construction is complete? That also probably has to do with their business plan. Um, you know, it's this real estate has never been a get rich quick business um it's been a get rich for sure business and here over the last four or five years with the way the market has exploded you had some people get rich really quickly and um that's usually not the norm right uh you have outliers all the time but for the most part that if a guy's going to build a development they've got it their end picture is either to own it or to sell it, right? And so if they're thinking about owning it, it could be, they could be doing this as a way to park money because they're looking for tax advantages, you know, um, depreciation, where you can get income and depreciation. Um, so they, this is a long-term hold for them. So that's how they're going to make money. Sometimes making money is by not paying taxes and a considerable amount of taxes. If you go and do a brand new development, that's $50 million and you got accelerated depreciation and you only have to put in $15 million cash, you know, you get to, to depreciate that $50 million asset and get cash flow coming in. It's a really great model. And then the other side of that is, Hey, you build this thing and it costs you $40 million to build it and it's worth $60 million. Do you want to sell it and get your money? So it probably depends where you are on the life cycle. Are you 80 years old or are you 40 years old? Do you want to enjoy your money today or do you want to leave it for somebody else because you're 80 years old and you ain't going to be here long? So uh, it has a lot to do with, with that. And probably market dictates a lot of that because I'm sure that over the last couple of years, you've had people that, had new developments come on that they didn't think that they were going to sell because uh, three years ago when they started planning this, the market wasn't that hot and then it got 
hot. And then it's like, well, man, we're coming to the market at the right time. We can 2X what we thought we were going to make. And so that's how you wind up with brand new stabilized deals on the market because not necessarily being a fire sale, but because the market has done so well that this guy that built it can, can pocket more money by selling it today than earning out his money over the next 15 years. Yeah. And I think that's going to be all the options that we help our clients think through as well. It's because one, having choices today is a privilege. That's that's first and foremost. It is. And and when you can decide whether or not you want to hold on to the property or put it out on the market and once it's stabilized and sell it off, I mean there's still a developer fee that you can earn from Correct. your projects too. Correct. But you can keep a few or sell off a few if you have the depreciation to kind of wipe off your taxable gains. Again, this is full disclaimer. This is not tax accounting, financial advice. We're not soliciting any investments. So please make sure you consult with your own attorneys and CPAs, et cetera. But what Alvin and I wanted to simply share is like open, we're just peeling back the curtains. We're helping everybody understand what what is this mysterious world of development. And at the end of the day, you're putting a project together, you're bringing a vision to life. Yeah. And there's so many different options for you to exit a exit a property, but also to make money on a property. Uh, Alvin, we talked a lot about how to make money, but we get so many questions all the time from people about, hey, I, I got this land and they just they just email it over to us, right? Or they, they text me all the time. It's like, hey, what do you think of this? What is sort of our buy box or criteria for opportunities that might work for development? And how did you come up with that criteria? Well, um, Ken, you know, we're focused on affordable multifamily housing. So it has to be that box. Um, first and foremost. And then starting with the end in mind that if we get into this project, it is our goal to see it through and to be built. Now, we'll decide later if we're going to own it long term or if it's a two-year, three-year hold. But the process or the thought process is to get it built and stabilized because you can't do anything until it's stabilized and so with that thought process we start with how is this asset paid for so if you're looking to build in a area that has a area median income less than eighty thousand dollars it's probably going to be a market that we're going to pass on so you could literally go to google and type in the area median income for your particular zip code and it'll tell you and if it's less than $80,000, you probably will. We're going to pass unless it's really close. And I'll tell you why. Now, there's some extenuating circumstances that may help it, but I don't want to go there right now. But the reason why is because when we're focused on a workforce and affordable housing, we are servicing 80% of the tenants are below 80% area median income. So we'll typically have 25% of the units set aside for market rate rent. 50% of the units are typically set aside for residents that make 80% of the area median income. And then 25% of the units will be set aside for people that make 60% of the area median income or less. Okay, so within those three boxes. And so when you look at that $80,000 threshold, since 50% of the units are going to be for people that make 80% of the, the area median income, 80% of 80000 is 
The powers that be say that we as consumers should not spend more than 30% of our income on housing. That's rent, electric, water, gas, whatever you use. So if you've got an income of $64,000, you've got roughly $21,500 a year that you could spend on housing. That's roughly $1,750, $1,800 a month. That's just quick back of the napkin math. If you've got average rents of $1,700 a month, you can build a, a great project that will be feasible for the market, that will make everybody money and provide that level of housing. Uh, if you are in a market where the area median income is $30,000 and you're setting aside units for people that make 80% of that, that's $24,000 a year. 30% of $24,000 a year is what? Six, seven thousand, eight thousand dollars a year. That's 650, 700 bucks a month. You can't build an apartment complex or any housing facility that costs you that little to where 650 bucks a month will pay for it. And that's typically why you don't see new development in areas where the area median income is very low. And so that's our that's our criteria. It has to have at least a box or area median income of above 80,000 or super, super close to it. And then we could peel back a few layers of the onion and, and get to some extenuating circumstances that would help. But for the most part, that's it. No, and I, and I that's great, great explanation there because we always also, whenever we get any deals sent our way, we also check with our investors, with our lenders to see whether it's even in an area that they're interested in. And this is where having those relationships is so key because you don't really want to start on a project or embark on a journey where you know there's nobody there going to support you. If if you're not going to get financing, it's much, much better not to spend the time upfront on all those entitlement costs if you know it's not going to get financed for the construction piece. Or if someone is purely like, hey, we only invest in areas where the MSE population is 250,000 people or more, or they want to be within a certain mile radius of a downtown metropolis. These are all the criteria that you will have to understand for your lenders and really pick out what do they, what's the risk appetite looking like and focus on that area afterwards. Because if you don't have investors for a deal, especially on a large scale development, that wouldn't not be advisable. Right. Yeah. No, that's well, Alvin, how, how did you come up with that ratio? 25% for market, 50% of uh, the units are set aside for 80% of AMI and 25% for 60%. Why Why that ratio? Help that explain that for us. That ratio was given to us by some of the tax-exempt bond deals that we've financed in the past. Um, and if you think about it, nobody wants to, as we were telling the, the lady, the, the team that we just got off the, the call with, Nobody wants to be responsible for putting together a project. You're going to build 200, 300 units, and you're going to put 300 people there that have an income below $30,000. You are perpetuating a cycle of poverty. Uh, you're not giving anybody anything to aspire to. They don't have anything to look at outside of where they live. Um, and that's just really, really, that's going to be a difficult place to manage. It's going to be a difficult place to, to keep up. You're going to have to have security at the zoo. And because poverty and crime just kind of go together, right? And so when you have that, um, that's not a good look. 
So if you can have 25% of your units at market rate, meaning people that make that $80,000 a year want to live there, that's great. And then you've got 50% of the units set aside for people that want to make, that make 80% of the area median income. So they're still in the forty dollars to $60,000 category. That's great. They've got great cars. They get to work. They're not laid up at home all day. You know, they, they really have jobs and they're productive members of society. <clears throat> and then you have 25% of the units set aside for residents that make 60% of that area median income or less. Now, that 60% or less, 60% of 80,000 is 48,000. Okay, that's still a great income. They got a job, they're going to work, they got cars. But you may have some people that apply that make $24,000 a year. Now, there are some criteria that you have to make so many times of rent to live there. And so you, you have a situation where if they have a job without any other type of assistance, then they may not qualify to live there. But if they have a housing voucher that pays market rent for that unit, their portion of the rent could only be $100. And so now, because you know they got to make three times their rent payment. Well, my rent payment is $100. My check is $900 a month. I qualify to live here. Yes, you do. So that person, uh, I'm not saying they're not productive members of society, but they have a $900 a month income. They could be retired. They could be on Social Security. But they could also be 19 years old on Social Security because they have two kids. And so then they have three kids. And each one of those kids gets a Social Security check for 700 800 bucks a month. So they qualify to live there based on income. But mom doesn't have a job because she's got three small kids. And so she's home all day. And the kids are either home with her or they're at school. And uh, and you get 25% of the population like that. The hope would be that those kids will grow up in an environment and mom would be in an environment to want to do better. Now, unfortunately, that a young mother with three kids, chances are her getting a job that pays enough to pay for daycare and all the things that she needs without the federal assistance is probably slim enough. So she's going to be at home all day with her kids. And so that's why that ratio of housing came up, Kent. Uh, it was given to us by our bond issuers. That's what we had to put in place to use their tax exempt bonds. But mm -hmm. if you think about what I just talked about, it really makes a lot of sense at building a community that can thrive, giving people something to look look up to, to aspire to be. Hopefully the kids will grow up in an environment where they see people going to work every day and yes. doing positive things versus sitting on a stoop doing nothing all day. And that's really what it's designed around. Yeah. And I can totally relate to that. Growing up in the apartment building I grew up in, we had we had a rent ceiling on our property, but I remember when I was leaving that that location, they gave me an option. They're like, "Hey, you can take a you can take the housing choice voucher or turn it into a essentially a project based voucher is what they may call it." But when you leave that subsidy with a unit, because I've gone off to college, gotten a good job, 
I can now leave and help somebody else move in into that unit so that they can enjoy the subsidy afterwards. And so much of this is giving a hand up to somebody where you're out, you're really allowing them to get a stable roof over their heads. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're creating an environment that you developed. Like I grew up in an aff- entirely affordable housing building, but there was a nice children's park downstairs. There was a basketball court. There was things for us to do. And I think when you create an environment, this is why I love doing development with you, Alvin. It's you get to help whatever population you want mm-hmm. and put in the environment that allows people to thrive and succeed. And you have a chance and the, the willpower and the say to make an, a life-changing effect on a family, especially for the kids that are growing up there. And, and some of those developments have daycares in them for that mm-hmm. very reason that I just talked about. Yep. Uh, you know, the, the parents get assistance from Social Security, probably WIC, and all kind of federal programs to help feed the kids and Medicaid. They're also assistance to help pay for daycare. I think it's tenant. And so with that, if there's a daycare that they don't have to drive 20 miles to out of the way to go to work, they could drop the kids off on the property and then get on a bus and go to school, go to work to help better them, to help them become better. And uh, you don't see much of that now, but that's a full-scale model. Absolutely. Well, Evan, we also talked through a little bit today about all the different pivots that we've had to do. Would you be open to sharing just sort of what our original intentions were with our development that we had in Kakana and Princeton, because we went through a lot of different options in financing to kind of ultimately arrive to where we are. You mentioned PACE funds, tax exempt bonds. Maybe just give us a little bit of that color and that journey of what your original intentions were and how to finance those properties and ultimately what were the options that we kind of arrived at? Well, let's, yeah, let's use Princeton as a great model. So when we started this two years ago, last month, we closed November of 21. The plan was to design, we had a, a fully entitled site, shovel ready, and it actually came, came with blueprints. I could have built it the way it was. And we'd be done by now. But I'll give you an offset to that. In the last year, interest rates, and we would we probably would just be completing. But in the last year, interest rates have gone from a 5% non-cap, non-fixed rate on that construction loan to 14% today. We bought the site. We got it. We put the site on contract in April of 21. We went through the process from April to November of working to get a loan, trying to get a loan, trying to figure out. I wanted to build this without a structurally insulated panel. So we were going to take the design that we purchased and turn that same complex into a SIP panel building. And so that meant re-engineering it, redesigning it, new architect, everything involved. And I thought that was a six-month process. It took a year. (laughs) During that year, uh, we got the first 200 units redrawn in about eight months and in that eight month period we went from being able to get 95 percent cltb combined loan to value to 70 percent 
Whoa. From a situation oh. of needing only $5 million to close on this thing to needing $20 million. Interest rates went from, like I said, 5% to 7, 8, 9, 12 on oh. construction loans. And so all of that created a situation where we had to rethink what we were doing. The first bid we got back on the plans after we redesigned them to the highest level of efficiency we could, it's too far to build. So then we had to go back to the drawing board and pull out some of the super high efficiency stuff that we were doing to make this thing like really, really green, 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 and just make it a normal project built out of structural insulated panels. So we still have the SIP technology we still have the efficiency. We still have the, the eco-friendliness, but we've got regular AC units, regular LED lights. Even though it's above par, it's normal, okay? That saved us. Well, it took us four more months to do that, but it saved us about a million dollars on that particular project. So did I save any money by burning four months? Well, the other side of the coin is when we got those first 200 designed and went through all of the rigmarole to get it financed, working with the city, we realized that because this site was fully entitled for 400 units, it had a water loop that had to go around the whole 16 acres. There was no way to subdivide the water and the sewer and the drainage. So we had to get all of that in place for the whole site. So now we've got $4 million worth of improvements on phase two that we could not roll into the financing for phase one. So that made it not feasible. So what we essentially had to do was go back to the drawing board again and say the only way we're going to make this work is to do all 400 units at one time. And so with the changes we made on the first 200 units, it allowed us to be able to get the second 200 units built for about $5 million less. So now we've got a really feasible project with a good, like $178 a square foot completed project. But it took us almost essentially two years to do it. During those two years, we embarked on regular financing with uh, partners, putting in uh, syndicated funds with just 5% is all we needed. Then we entertained the thought process of trying to raise the 20%, but then that was 20% of 80 million. So that was substantially higher at much higher interest rates on the financing plus a higher expectation from the partners. Then we went into the bond structure of saying, okay, well, this is workforce housing. We can get this financed with tax exempt bonds. We can put in place some property tax savings and really make this thing hum. And that one is still on the board as a backup plan to the plan that we have now, which is to take the asset, do a forward commitment, sell it, and, and develop it, build it for the guys and then and but we essentially sold it and so we would earn out some cash by getting a project built for them man what so, a journey 
It's been a journey over two years. But the reason we don't quit, Ken, is because we started with the end in mind. And when you have the end in mind, there will always be a solution to get there. It just doesn't always feel good going through the process. Yes. And I think these are the stories that you you can't make up. No, you can't. You can't make up and you have to just go through it, go through the hard steps, go through the hard conversations to get to the position that we are today. Because with what happened with cap rates, you never know whether or not we would have probably been caught on the wrong side of the how high the interest rates have gone up. <laughs> oh, that, that was my point I was making in the beginning that I forgot to drive home. Had we built what we bought, those plans, we would have been halfway through that project when interest rates tripled from 5% to not triple, 12%. But that's interest payment on $30 million with a built-in amount of debt service that would have been burned up the first quarter. And you still got a year and a half to go. Would we have been able to finish that project? We'd have probably had to raise five more million dollars just to cover the interest which would have diluted everybody's interest, which would have made it really not feasible on that level without the interest rate being locked in on the beginning. So it would have made it really, really difficult. And when I say that every one of the delays that we have had has caused us or given us an opportunity to be in a better position, we had to go through some fire to get here, but uh, it put us in a better position. And I've learned so much about myself and about the industry and about our work, but mainly about myself and how tough my own skin is. That's been the biggest journey. That, that's been one of the biggest takeaways. And I've lost 40 pounds since then. <laughs> Not because of that, but all in a way to try to get better, changing my diet, changing what I'm reading, changing what I'm putting into my system at night as far as TV shows and books. And mm -hmm. all of that has been part of this two-year journey. And said, I look better today than I did five years ago. And <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what being a developer would do for you. It's uh, <laughs> yes, for yes. those of you that are aspiring to be developers. Not only do you get to be surrounded by great energy around folks that are all on the same boat, we're all rowing towards the same direction. And that is why I found development to be so cool. I feel like it's one of the most entrepreneurial side of real estate, to be quite honest with you, because you just have dirt and you get to pick whatever you want to do with it. And so many and you get, Yeah. And you get to pick whoever you want to work with on all this stuff. So Alvin, this was an amazing conversation. This was a great podcast episode. I'm so glad we got to, got to kick back and just have a conversation because I know we've been working hard for, so hard for the past two months trying yep. to get these deals closed. So this is always an honor to talk with you, man. I'm sure let's keep this going. These these stories and these conversations, I think the audience finds so much value listening to us and yep. just talking through what our thought process even looked like because this is how you learn. And when you can learn from some of our mistakes and and you're able to meet someone that views setbacks as another learning opportunity or as potential leg up again, that's really who you want to surround yourself with. Agreed. Right. This has been oh. good. Yes, sir. This is good. And we are out for today.